Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Steve Oldham, the CEO of Carbon Engineering. Founded in 2009, Carbon Engineering is a Canadian-based clean energy company leading the commercialization of groundbreaking technology that captures CO2 directly from the atmosphere and a second technology that synthesizes it into clean, affordable transportation fuels. From a pilot plant in Squamish, BC, Carbon Engineering has been removing CO2 from the atmosphere since 2015 and converting it into fuels since 2017. They are funded by several government and sustainability-focused agencies, as well as by private investors, including Bill Gates and oil sands financier Anne Murray Edwards. In 2019, the company received $68 million in funding from a number of investors, including fossil fuel companies Chevron, Occidental, and BHP. I was excited for this one because what Carbon Engineering is doing is interesting, important, and a bit controversial as well. But we have a great discussion about the company, what it does, why it exists, direct air capture and how it works, why it's important, where they are in their progress to date, what's coming next, the long vision for the company. We talk about the big oil and gas companies and how they fit into the picture and policies and the roles there. We also talk about enhanced oil recovery versus pure CO2 removal and why Steve believes that enhanced oil recovery is a great entry point for the company. Overall, it's a great discussion. I learned a lot about this important area, and I think you will as well. Steve Oldham, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. It's like to have you. As I, I mentioned to you before we, we hit record, I, I feel like I should disclose I'm a tiny carbon engineering investor, but my admission is that, you know, other than knowing that this was an important area and that you guys were the leaders and that Jim McDermott, who we've already done an episode with, who's on the board, you know, is someone that I trust and respect. And he had wonderful things to say. I I didn't know a whole lot coming in. It was more like a marker just to get a lot closer to the action, which has been great. I'm proud to be involved, but I'm, you know, I still come with tons of questions. So I feel really fortunate to have this opportunity to spend 45 minutes or an hour with you today. No problem. I look forward to your questions and and thanks for your interest. So maybe for starters, Steve, just tell me a bit about carbon engineering. Take it from the top. What is it? Well, I'll start with the company mission because I always think the mission is the most important thing. So carbon engineering was founded on the principle that large scale CO2 capture directly from the atmosphere was going to become important. So the company was founded nine years by Dr. David Keith. He's a professor at Harvard right now. Down the street from me, by the way. I'm in Boston. Oh, perfect. Oh, that was another thing I forgot to mention is that I had met David several times before getting involved in, and he's great. Yeah, David's vision in in identifying large-scale carbon capture as a problem and founding a company to deal with it has been tremendous. So what we do, we capture CO2 directly from the air. So we're not a carbon capture company in terms of a point source of emission. Think of a flue stack or a car or a cement plant, all those things. We capture CO2 directly from the air, 400 parts per million in the air. We pull it out and produce 100% CO2. So why is that important? So I'll give you two reasons why it's important, then we can get into a more detailed discussion. So the first is, One of the things that a lot of people forget about the challenge of CO2 and climate change is the legacy CO2 emissions. So there is a lot of focus on eliminating emissions. You know, the UK just announced net zero. We're building electric cars. We're converting to renewable energy. All of that stuff is chipping away at the 40 gigatons that we emit per year right now from the planet. But Today, we emitted a lot. Yesterday, we emitted a lot. And if you look at the volume of CO2 that causes a problem, you know, the scientists state that the safe level of CO2 in the atmosphere is 350 parts per million. We're over 400 and rising continuously. To get back to 350, we have to remove about 800 gigatons of existing CO2. 
as well as stopping emissions. So that's the first reason why carbon engineering is important. We are dealing with yesterday's emissions and the day before, all the way back to 1750 or whenever the Industrial Revolution started. Second reason why it's important, when you look at emission control, there is you know, the low-hanging fruit, the stuff that's relatively easy to do, you know, behavioral changes, low-cost process fixes, and we can reduce emissions that way. Then there is the challenging emissions. And here I would put in switching to renewable energy, everybody getting an electric car. Those things are doable but hard. Then there is the last lot of emissions. Those are the ones that we don't have solutions for right now. Things like aviation is a great example. You know, are we going to invent an electric plane? Can we make enough synthetic fuel for, to power a plane? We're a long ways off that. So for those emissions, maybe the right answer is don't decarbonize them at source. Instead, clean up afterwards. And that's what CO2 collection from the atmosphere does for you. It gives you a way to decarbonize any emission anywhere in the world, no matter how hard it is to address it at source. And this is, I think, one misconception that I had coming in, and I, I feel like a lot of people have is that there's so much talk about emissions reduction but like you said there's so much carbon that's already up in the atmosphere already and it takes hundreds of years to to leave so it's basically going to be there for i mean well beyond our lifetimes and as a percentage of that denominator net new emissions is is pretty small so it is important to reduce, but we have to find a way to remove at this point because the hole that we've found ourselves in is just too steep. And as you said, it's getting steeper every day. So that is a fundamentally important point that I just didn't get seven months ago when I was first starting to learn about this area. No, it's, it's absolutely critical. Just on a pure numbers basis, if we need to remove 800 gigatons and we're adding five gigatons, sorry, 40 gigatons per year. That means when we deal with emissions, we're actually only dealing with 5% of the problem. So if we globally eliminate all our emissions tomorrow, we've solved 5% of the problem. So we have to be thinking of the 95%. And that's what David Keith's vision was focused on when he founded the company. And that's our mission as a company. And why I always start when introducing the company to people, I always talk about the mission. We're focused on the 95% because it's critical. If you can maybe talk a bit about the how, and when I say that, I guess I mean that two ways, both the how in terms of what you ultimately aspire to do, and also the how in terms of what you've chosen to bite off as your entry point. Sure. So fundamentally, for us, the, the key question is scalability, because the size of the problem is so large, as we just discussed hundreds of gigatons is the size of the problem. So from day one, the company's been focused on scalability. So I'll talk about the technical scalability and then I'll talk about the business scalability. So firstly, technical scalability. So our process uses equipment that is used at scale in other industries today. So we don't have to invent or mass produce a new piece of equipment. We are buying equipment that comes from the pulp and paper industry, the water treatment industry, the INR industry, the cooling tower industry. So we've built a system based upon readily available, proven at large quantities equipment. And that's key for scalability. Secondly, our process that we have, it's a chemical process and it's self-contained. So as we go take our CO2 from 400 parts per million into a 100% CO2 gas, each step of the process, we regenerate the chemical used in the prior step. So what that means is our system is essentially a closed loop system. So the only input we need is obviously air, water, and power. No other chemical part of the system. Again, what that means is we can locate in many, many locations around the world. So one of the challenges with point source capture, where you capture the CO2 at the point of emission, is the distributed nature of emitters. There's a billion cars in the world. I don't know how many airplanes, but many. 
So trying to put together a system that captures from each of these widely distributed point source emissions is difficult. With our technology, you can locate a plant wherever you have water and power, and you can collect CO2. Then in terms of business scalability, we're a strong believer that it's, it's not feasible for one company to bring this technology into the world on its own. If we insisted on building, owning, operating every one of our plants, we would never be able to build enough to address the problem. So our business model is to license our technology. So we will demonstrate and prove our technology here in North America. And then we will license the countries, governments, companies around the world that wish to build these plants to address their climate change problem and their Paris Accord obligations. And that way, if successful, we would see our plants operating and working across the globe, continuously working like the garbage guys in collecting the CO2 from the atmosphere that we have been unable to eliminate emissions for, and also chipping away at all that CO2 that we've put into the air from many previous years. So what was the state of the direct air capture technology before carbon engineering? And then what is the, you know, what's different about your solution that moves the ball forward relative to what existed already? Yeah, so, you know, the concept of chemical reactions to, to capture CO2 has been around for many, many years. It's not new, you know, 50, 60 years. What's different and, and fundamental to our approach is this point about scalability in large scale. So the use of existing equipment, the use of chemicals that are readily available that have no, are no consumables, the use of a large PVC filter as the front end of the system that drives the cost down. So fundamentally, if you look through the direct air capture history, you'll find cost estimates from various bodies that, that estimated direct air capture as you know, 600 to 1,000 tons, dollars per ton, I'm sorry. And at that price point, it, it's simply not affordable as a widespread solution for climate change. So with our approach, existing equipment, no consumables, you get the price point much lower down. We are very confident in a $100 price point. And when you consider the the range of abatement mechanisms to address CO2, inventing an electric plane, that's going to cost a lot more than $100 per ton. Widespread adoption of electric trucks or shipping, trying to address eliminations, sorry, emissions from the agriculture sphere. These things are going to cost a lot more than $100 a ton. So we see that our technology combined with capture technology for a good segment of the point source field is a real enabler. So it's those things that drives the price down. And when the price is affordable, $100 a ton, direct air capture becomes feasible at scale, which it hasn't been before. And when you say $100 a ton, can you put some context around, because you said $100 a ton and you said affordable at $100 a ton. How should me or the general public that isn't up to speed on this price and who buys it and and what the price is to beat and and where you know where prices on carbon or or 45q or or that stuff kicks in versus just market based like could you, could you maybe just give kind of a quick primer on how to think about that price per ton and and what it means yeah it's a complex question of course so you know one of the policy thoughts is that there should be a single dollar tax penalty, incentive, however you choose to implement it, but a cost to carbon that is consistent. So let's say that cost for carbon is $50 per ton. With a $50 per ton price point, what happens? So for the, what I call the low hanging fruit, the relatively straightforward emission control mechanisms that can be implemented by just changing processes, not venting CO2, collecting it instead, those types of application at $50 a ton, the companies doing those will make profit. So capital will flow to those areas and we will be able to declare success because we are capturing CO2. But at $50 a ton, the 
more difficult and challenging areas of CO2 capture and reduction will not attract funding. So our challenge at $100 per tonne, we would not attract any funding if the carbon price was $50 a tonne. So the risk of a single carbon price is that you overly incentivize and reward the low-hanging fruit and you fail to advance the challenging parts of CO2. So carbon engineering, our view is that it's too simplistic to have a single price on CO2. And let me give you an example. If you have a cement plant and your cement plant vents CO2 as part of your process today, it is very easy to capture that CO2 and you've you've eliminated a ton of emissions. It, it's very necessary and very good, but it's relatively straightforward. CO2 in the atmosphere, 400 parts per million. So let me try and put that in a context people understand. If you take a drop of ink and drop it into a swimming pool, come back a week later and try and extract the drop of ink. That drop of ink is 400 parts per million in a swimming pool. So inherently, dealing with legacy CO2 is a lot harder than capturing emissions from a flu stack. So there should be a differentiated pricing for that. And things like 45Q, and do not get me wrong, I'm very supportive of any price for carbon because it drives behavioral changes and we start dealing with the low-hanging fruit. But it, it isn't high enough to deal with things like atmospheric CO2. What price does 45Q put on carbon? So 45Q is $50 per ton of CO2 permanently sequestered. And it's a tax credit. So it's not a payment from government. You have to be a profitable entity so that you can cut your taxes by doing this. So it's a great system. Do not get me wrong. It's a great system. It incentivizes the large companies that have emissions and make profit to address those emissions and cut their taxes as a reward and incentive for doing so. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't enable new companies like ours dealing with the complex end of CO2 capture, which is the atmospheric CO2, as we discussed earlier, which is utterly essential. And when you say you're confident in the $100 number, in what time scale are you talking about? So, you know, when you have a process that uses equipment that is in mass use today, it's actually relatively straightforward for us to produce the cost estimate because we phone up the suppliers and we talk to them about buying quantities of their uh, equipment. We go to professional engineering companies that understand how to build our plants. We go to our one consumable, which is energy. And we ask the energy business what prices they're prepared to pay at different locations. And together, we can put together a cost. So the short answer to your question is we expect to be there around our fourth or fifth plant. And our costs for the first plant are not dramatically higher. They're not tenfold higher or anything similar. They're higher, but well within the context of affordability at the big picture level. What are the biggest levers that are going to drive that cost down over time as you build more plants? So frankly, cost of financing is one. When you are first implementing a plant, the commercial finance sector will assign a higher risk premium. So the cost for us of borrowing money and attracting equity for the first plants is inherently higher. The second one is the cost of renewable electricity. Our plan for our plants is they will run 100% on renewable electricity. And we've seen a drop in price for renewable energy on a consistent basis. We actually get better than market pricing because what we do is we buy power behind the grid. So we set up a, a dedicated renewable energy facility at a location where there isn't one today, put our plant right next door, and then take the power right off that plant. And what that allows us to do, you avoid the transmission costs, you avoid storage costs, so you get the price down lower. So our one consumable is electricity. The lower the price of that, the lower our cost. And then capital reduction through finance and just the process of learning. You know, any large plant, the more you build of them and they become built to print, it becomes very efficient to integrate, test and commission them. Where do the LCFS 
credits fit in and, and what are the LCFS credits? So the LCFS, you're, I think, speaking about the California Low Carbon Fuel Standard. Yeah, I think I read I read an article that talked about how, and I think you were quoted in it talking about how both 45Q and the LCFS credits are crucial, at least for plant number one. Yeah, so the LCFS in California, the, the people in California have identified and recognized that there are these different types of emission and different types of CO2. So they have done what I described earlier on. They have differentiated between carbon capture from the atmosphere and point source emissions. So in the LCFS, there is a mechanism where if you capture CO2 directly from the atmosphere and bury it underground, that qualifies as the highest credit that the LCFS has available. Today, those credits are trading at about, I think it's $180. So they recognize this differentiation and that allows us to close the business case for a first plant. And that's why in May, we announced our first plant in Texas. It will capture on an annual basis 500,000 tons of atmospheric CO2. It's a half-size plant. For us, a full-size plant for us is a megaton of atmospheric CO2 capture per year. And just to, again, to put that in simple terms, a megaton plant is the equivalent of 40 million trees. So building out those one megaton plants in multiple different locations, that's where we'll go. It's what we intend to do. And we now have our first plant underway in Texas. And if you, if you just take a point in time snapshot of where we are today, is it a fair assessment that the tech is there, but the math is not in terms of being able to do this direct air capture profitably at scale? No, I mean, look, we wouldn't have announced a plant, you know, neither ourselves nor Oxy would have announced the first plant if we didn't fully expect it to be profitable. But what I will say is the geographical reach of what we can do is limited because there are limited jurisdictions around the world that have implemented the 45Q, the LCFS type policies that allow the business case to close. So we're focused on, on Texas and, and America right now because there have been the visionaries in place that have put those mechanisms on the books and that will allow us to get our technology into market. It will allow us to drive down our costs. And obviously what we hope and what we lobby for and what we communicate for is that more jurisdictions around the world begin to adopt that type of legislation because it allows us to deal with those benefits I talked about earlier on of hard to capture emissions and legacy CO2. And is a bet on carbon engineering also a bet that there will be a higher price on carbon across all geographies? Or I guess said another way, do you think that you'll be able to get to multi-billion ton scale of carbon removal ever without a price on carbon? So that's a great question. So let me start by answering it this way. If we believe that there is a cost to carbon, and, and when I say we, I mean you know the economy. If we believe there is a cost to climate change, and the cost to carbon, then inherently there is a value in removing it. If we don't believe that, and we don't believe that we're heading towards a carbon conscious economy, then we don't have a business. And you know that's a moral dilemma for me, because obviously I want carbon engineering to succeed for our shareholders. Equally, if we didn't have a business for that reason, then maybe we don't have a climate change problem anymore. It's been solved another way. Or we don't have a planet that's viable for human life, one, yes, one or the other. No, that's not a good <laughs> scenario either. So for me, if you're heading into a carbon conscious economy, there will be a cost and hence a value for climate change. And you know, the way that I look at it, it's, it's hard to describe perhaps over, over a podcast, but if you consider a very simple graph with the cost of abatement being the y-axis and the percentage of CO2 eliminated being the x-axis, I think that's a exponential curve going up to the top right. In other words, the first 20% is relatively straightforward and easy to do. The next 50% is challenging you know, and will cost more and more electric cars for every person on the planet renewable energy, replacing fossil fuel everywhere. This is difficult and expensive, but over time it's doable. The last 30% becomes really, really hard. 
So over time, I expect that the cost of, of, of carbon and the value in removing it will increase because it will get harder and harder on a marginal basis to eliminate the next ton. Just straightforward economics. So meanwhile, we'll come down the cost curve so that, you know, as we draw a line across my graph that I just described, more and more of those emissions are ones that we can deal with after emission rather than trying to eliminate them at point source. So, Steve, if the policies need to come around, I guess my question for you is what policies would be most relevant to accelerate this transition? I think there's two. The first one is, is the one that I mentioned, a recognition that dealing with legacy CO2 is inherently different than dealing with point source emissions and has a different value proposition, a different cost point, and is equally essential. One could even argue, using my 95% argument from earlier on, one could even argue that it's more essential. So we'd like to see a policy that says if you eliminate an emission, then a point source, then you receive X dollars. If you deal with legacy CO2, then you receive a multiple on X. That's the first one. And then the second area, we haven't yet talked about using the CO2 that you capture to produce products with a very low carbon intensity. Some prior perspectives on the pod, I think, and I started out this discussion with some of that was around the difference between the new emissions and the carbon that's already up there. And I had never in this price on carbon discussion heard anyone to date distinguish or, or, or use the term legacy emission versus or legacy removal versus you know, removal at, at the point source when it's when it's emitted. But to me, and I guess the caveat is that I'm a, I'm a newbie and what do I know? But that makes a ton of sense and is also in line with this kind of evolving worldview that I've been having around taking the carbon that's already in the atmosphere out is, the, is one of the most fundamental things that we can do to solve climate change. Yeah, and, and it's what the IPCC report, the UN report, the Royal Academy report, the National Academy report, you know, I could go on. All of those have identified this fundamental point that emission control is not enough. So we have to start thinking about that bigger picture. Again, don't get me wrong. All of us should be actively working to eliminate emissions. And I talked about how direct air capture can play into that by dealing with the hard to eliminate emissions. But the great thing about direct air capture is if we introduce direct air capture and deal with those harder emissions using direct air capture, you've developed and proven the technology to deal with legacy. So electric cars, renewable energy, fantastic, absolutely essential. But then the value of those from an emission perspective will run out. We will get to net zero, but we'll still have the legacy problem. So we have to be thinking of both things. And was there a second policy change that, that would be fundamentally important as well? Yeah, I wanted to talk about, so we capture CO2. So fantastic. We have these this large quantity of CO2 that's been captured. So what do we do with it? So our plant in Texas will, will put the CO2 back underground. In the Permian Basin in Texas, there's enough room to put 100 years of the planet's emissions back underground. So storage isn't the problem. And it's safe. There has to my knowledge, never been an incident with a, a man-made CO2 sequestration where the CO2 was leaked. So it's an established business, and that's why we partner with Occidental. They're the world's leaders in putting CO2 back underground. So that there's a whole area of putting CO2 back underground again. That, that makes a lot of sense. Does that have a name, that area? Permian Basin. In no, does the, the name, like the category of putting CO2 back in the ground, does that have a name? We call it sequestration. I think that's widely used, but maybe others have different names. We call it sequestration. So I, I want to talk about the other usage of CO2, though. So instead of putting it underground, CO2 is widely used in many different products. An example is fuel. So what we do at Carbon Engineering, and we've been doing this since 2017, we combine the CO2 we take from the atmosphere with hydrogen made from renewable electricity put it through a power to, uh, sorry, a gas to liquids process. And then you produce a hydrocarbon. And that hydrocarbon can be diesel, can be gasoline, can be jet fuel. 
Now, because you took CO2 from the atmosphere in the first place, you've created a chemically identical fuel that is compatible with any vehicle you see. So you look out the window, all those cars, trucks, buses, ships, planes, they can all use a synthetic fuel made this way. But when they burn the CO2 in the fuel, you're replacing the CO2 that we took out of the atmosphere in the first place. So you've created essentially a carbon neutral synthetic fuel. So regions like California, here in Canada, we have the same in British Columbia and, and other regions across Canada, incentivize people and providers of fuel to reduce the carbon intensity of that fuel, the quantity of CO2 in the fuel. That is also a very good way to incentivize emission control. So if governments set up a policy that the lower the carbon intensity of a product that has carbon, be it fuel, be it fertilizer, be it beverages, whatever it may be, the lower the carbon intensity, then there is an incentive in place to reward that. Again, because there's a cost of carbon, there has to be a value in removing it. That's the second policy area, which would greatly incentivize companies like ours. This is our 38th episode, and, and these are two points that nobody's brought up before. So kudos for that. <laughs> Great. Good to be unique. One question, Steve. So for those two policy initiatives that you mentioned, are there advocacy groups that are working on those areas? And the reason I ask is that if that resonates with viewers, I want to know if there's any, you know, if there's any groups that they should look into supporting. Yeah, you know, it's, it's always a, a double-edged sword because generally speaking, individuals, politicians don't want to advocate for policies that are not feasible. So, you know, a politician who brings in a policy that there is no way to implement is not going to be a, a successful politician. Um, similarly, people don't want to waste their time and energy advocating for policy change that's not effective or doable. So for us, it's been very important to publicize, make real the fact that we can, this te technology that we've developed exists, it works, it's credible, it's affordable. Because when that's the case, you can put policy in place um, that promotes this technology without the risk that you've you've put in, in place a lamed up policy. So increasingly, we are seeing, just in the last year, we are seeing policy groups, um, governments more and more interested in direct air capture and the types of policies that I've talked about. I actually, you can, you can look it up online. I testified to the US Senate, I think in April, about this type of technology and the importance of it. I was in the UK last week, talking to the UK government about why direct air capture needs to be part of their solution. So it's building momentum, but it, in my view, it has to be linked to the feasibility of a solution. Yeah, I mean, it, it almost seems like there's an initiative that the people are advocating for prices on carbon. There's an, an education campaign to educate them on this, this angle. So at least they, they factored into their consideration. I do want to keep things moving because I know we're short on time and there's some key topics that we haven't dug into that, that I'd love to. One is I've read that with some of the work that you're doing with Oxy to prove out the model and the tech that you're doing EOR versus carbon removal. And some critics have kind of pointed to that as a knock. It'd be great if you, I mean, I'm, I'm not I don't know much about enhanced oil recovery and the pros and the cons and, and how it works, but if you could just kind of speak to that and, and how people should, should think about that and what your plans are initially and directionally, that would be super helpful. Sure. Yeah. Happy to do so. Enhanced oil recovery is a mechanism used extensively in the Permian Basin where you, you push CO2 underground and the pressure created forces crude up. And obviously that crude can then be sold into the energy market. So enhanced oil recovery has been around for many years. It's an established process. So what is different about our approach? So instead of CO2 from the ground, which is the way that enhanced oil recovery has worked so far, you pull CO2 from one location and you bury it in another. When you use atmospheric CO2 and push that down into a well, the crude that comes up contains less CO2 post-combustion 
than you took out of the atmosphere in the first place. So think about that for one second. If that's the case, then your fossil fuel produced this way is carbon neutral. And we have an ongoing challenge that the world continues to demand energy. You know, there are, there are many people who paint the oil and gas companies as the bad guys, but they aren't. They are providing a, a need that you and I and everybody else on the planet demands. We want energy. So if that energy production can be tied into carbon neutrality, then you have a way forward to give us time to convert to all electric vehicles, all renewable energy, that middle 50% that I talked about. That is not going to happen overnight. A billion cars in the world. Everybody wants energy. Renewables will take a long time to be fully implemented across the planet. So we see enhanced oil recovery using atmospheric CO2. I emphasize that very strongly. You only get to carbon neutrality if you took the CO2 out of the atmosphere before you started. So the plant that we're doing in, in Texas, part of the economics that closes is the fact that we make crude, but it's carbon neutral crude. And then it, it, we sell that into the market with Oxy and, and everything they do. The second part of the equation, and we do get this criticism of, well, you're, you're enabling the oil and gas companies, you're enabling the continuity of fossil fuels. So point one, if it's carbon neutral fossil fuel, is that really a bad thing? Point two, we are developing the technology that will solve these major problems for climate change. This challenge of the legacy CO2, the hard to abate emissions. So by doing enhanced oil recovery in the short term, carbon neutral, and you get to develop the technology to solve a much larger problem later. So I'm, I will defend that to the hilt as long as anybody asks me. Got it. So, so it's not a bridge to be doing more pure CO2 removal over time. It's more defending the approach that you're taking and that that's approach that, that you envision for as far as the eye can see. No. So, you know, doing enhanced oil recovery with atmospheric CO2 is a market to produce carbon neutral fossil fuel. So put that to one side. But by doing that, you've developed the technology to do those large scale negative emissions, the, the cleanup of CO2 from the atmosphere. So when those government policies come in that allow that and reward that, our technology will be proven at scale, will have driven the cost down low. The taxpayer will have benefited from all that work that's been funded that way. And the feasibility of large scale legacy CO2 clear up will have been proven. So we do both. Got it. Thank you for clarifying that. Another topic, and you just touched on it briefly, but I'd, I'd be remiss if, if we didn't hit on it more directly, is just that. I mean, you work with Oxy, you work with Chevron, you, I mean, the, as you said, I mean, you're, you're working with the, the fossil fuel producers and you're enabling them to do so in a carbon neutral way. The optimist says, that's great. And what's wrong with that? And, and why wouldn't we, if we can do it, the, the, the pessimist says that it's just going to give them a free pass to keep, to keep right on emitting. So I, I mean, you've sort of, addressed it already, it'd be great if we could just spend a little bit of time on, on that topic directly, because I, I think it's an important one. Yeah, I'm, again, I'm very, very happy to talk about it. I'm delighted with the partners we have. And, you know, when you talk about the challenge of CO2 removal, this is a massive global enterprise with a lot of chemical, a lot of plant, a lot of engineering. Then you have to deal with all this CO2. You have to put it back underground. You have to permanently and safely get rid of it. So what is the industrial sector that has been doing that type of activity for many, many years? And the answer is the oil and gas industry, the energy industry. They have been taking things out of the ground and know exactly how to do that. They understand the geology. They understand the engineering, the, the feasibility, the chemistry. They're the perfect guys to put stuff back underground again, which is what we need to do. So from a partner perspective, we think the oil and gas industry is, is ideal because they have the skill set. So then the question, the second part of your question is the motivation. So, you know, what if they're only doing this to enable their businesses to keep producing fossil fuel or address the critics, however you want to portray that negatively as, as many people do. So, 
you know, what I see in my dealings with the with the oil and gas industry, you know, we we only partner with Oxy after I met with their CEO, and she described to me her vision for Oxy, which is to become a carbon neutral energy company. And she said that publicly many, many times. So I see the smart oil and gas companies recognizing that there is a change afoot. And smart companies through history have always been the ones that react first and quickest. So that's what I'm seeing in our relationship with the oil and gas industries, highly motivated, highly capable partners. So I have no qualms, no issues with the relationships we have with the partners we have. Obviously, I can't speak to every oil and gas company or resource company. I'm only working with our current investors, but they've been tremendous partners. And I see them as highly motivated to be addressing this challenge because they're businesses. They want to continue to succeed and the world is changing. So get ahead of the change. I mean, this is a a tricky question to ask, given that that some of them are are your partners. But I, I guess one thing that I just personally wrestle with or that I'm trying to understand better is historically, do you believe that there have been misdeeds from the big hydrocarbon companies? And, and if so, should there be any type of accountability for those or should we just be looking forwards? So, you know, my job in the world is is not to decide policy or justice or any of those things. My job in the world is to produce tools that can make a material impact to climate change and get those into the market. So I will continue to be totally focused on that. If the best way to do that is to work with energy companies for the reasons that I've said, then so be it. I'm more than happy to do so. This is all about looking forward and not about looking backwards. We have a crisis, an emergency in many people's words. So I'm focused on bringing the tools to market that can address that crisis. Whatever happened yesterday, happened yesterday. And I appreciate that work. And and I think that's one thing we can definitely agree on is that we are in crisis and that the best way out of the crisis is what we should be doing to minimize suffering looking forwards. And that does need to be a top priority. So, I mean, I think that, I think that point is, is well taken. So w- what is next for carbon engineering? It's an exciting time for us. You know, we've announced that first plant, as I mentioned. We'll be building that over the next two to three years. We would like to build at least one other plant in parallel. And we're working on several opportunities for that, which include bringing our synthetic fuel to the market. And then with two or three plants underway, we would then concentrate on getting those fielded and deployed at scale, while we also concentrate on finding more partners worldwide. So to your listeners, and, and I know you have an influential list of listeners, you know, our technology is available for anybody who wants to license it and bring it to their country. Our priority, once we have those plants financed and we're underway with them, will be worldwide partnerships. Let's start building these plants in Europe, in Asia, in in South America, and and across the globe, because this is a global problem and it requires a global solution. And what type of profile is the sweet spot for those partners today? Good question. You know, there's, I think there's a variety, actually. I mean, clearly, as I mentioned earlier on, the oil and gas and energy sector understands how to field chemical plants worldwide and bring energy to the market put things underground. So they're an obvious candidate. Equally, companies that have established presence in country, engineering companies that have good relationships in country, recognize the government policies that are in place, they're good candidates too. You know, I'm thinking of chemical companies and large industrial companies. But equally, you know, we're we're prepared to partner with with new companies that bring financing and knowledge of local conditions. So we have a lot of Incoming interest, which is great, covering all of those three broad categories that I just described. And I guess taking a step back from carbon engineering directly, if you were just looking overall at the decarbonization problem or a carbon problem, I should say, and you had a big pot of money, let's say $100 billion, and you could allocate it towards anything to have the biggest impact on that problem, where would it go? How would you allocate it? What a great question. I've never had that question before. So, you know, I'll, I guess I, 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 kinda, I can't help going back to my point. I take a step back from this and say, 
if 5% of the problem is emissions and 95% of the problems is removal, then we should spend more money on removal. Again, I'm a believer that people want to see hope and solutions for climate change. So, you know, I, I greatly endorse and, and applaud all the companies that are working on emission control, but they're getting the lion's share, more than the lion's share of funding, policy, and interest. So you know, I would go back to my fundamental point, which is if you shut down emissions tomorrow, completely, worldwide, we've got to deal with legacy too. So let's start spending some more money on that. One of the points that I made when I talked to Congress is, you know, you have a need which the IPCC, the UN, Royal Academy, National Academy, all these guys said was critical, CO2 removal. And the number of people working on direct air capture on the entire planet is about 100. You know, for a technology that is deemed critical by climate scientists to protect the future of our species and our planet, to have about 100 people working on it, to me, that's, that's a real problem. We need more brilliant minds into this problem. We need to continue to optimize the process. We need to look at other solutions. Carbon engineering has one, but there'll be others and bring the solutions to the table. And if, if you can't, that, that's fine. But you think we can take that one step more granular? You've talked about what outcome you want to achieve with the money, but where would it actually go to maximize its impact to, to, to help facilitate that outcome? Yeah, so if I had, I would do what California is doing. I would establish a market-based mechanism which would recognize that legacy CO2 is more valuable because it's harder than point source CO2. And when you establish a market-based mechanism, just like is happening with us in California, good companies, innovators, and smart people will come to the table and fix the problem. So if we had a global incentive-based mechanism saying, if you produce a ton of atmospheric CO2, you know, we'll give you two or three X the credit compared to point source CO2, you would ignite an industry our company would succeed, other good companies would come in with brilliant ideas, and we would start to deal with this problem. So that would be my, my, you know, my implementation mechanism. I'm a great believer in market-based incentives. I've had some carbon pricing experts on the pod already. I'm tempted after this episode to run back to them and tell them what we talked about and see what ideas they have for, for how to make that a reality. Yeah, and again, you know, I, I think the carbon pricing policy people to date haven't regarded negative emissions and direct air capture seriously enough because the perception has been the price point is unaffordable. So, you know, my message is it's not. You know, we have the technology, it's proven, we're building the first plants, we'll be at $100 or less. So start working the policy that can support bringing that to market. In closing, I, I've never done this before, but I feel like this is an opportunity just to to extend a, a public invite because one perspective that we don't yet have represented on the pod is, is from the big hydrocarbon companies. And I've talked to Jim McDermott now, who's, who's on your board, and now I've had a great conversation with you. I understand the perspective of the people that are angry at the hydrocarbon companies, but at the same time, to your point, you know, we demand all this energy and other than carbon, they've done a world of good for the world and, and for hu humanity. And looking forward, they're an essential piece of the equation. And, and you have you know, companies like, like Oxy that are on the front lines really innovating and, and pushing the envelope in this area. So it would be great if we could get someone like Vicky or like Richard from Oxy Ventures to come on the show. Yeah, I think it's a viewpoint that you do want to hear, in my view. I mean, obviously, it's up to those companies to decide if that's something they want to do. But, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I would not fault the ambition the determination and the capability of the partners that we have from the energy sector. They're, they're a tremendous help for us bringing our technology to market. Their voice should be heard. My last question for you, Steve, is just for all the listeners out there that are inspired, you know, both worried and also inspired to help, but unsure exactly how to figure out their lane with their time or with their capital or both, what advice do you have for them? So twofold. Every single one of us should work to 
eliminate or reduce our personal emissions, whether that's by you know, reducing our energy use where we can, things that we haven't talked about recycling, I'm obviously focused on CO2. So first thing, focus on your at home and your personal self and your emissions, because that at scale makes a huge difference. Secondly, lobby for climate change and real mitigation to be central to government policy. You know, what I, every time I do the math, to use just our technology to address the entire planet's emissions would cost one and a half to 2% of GDP. I am not suggesting for one second that that's the right answer because there are many better ways of reducing emissions. We're a part of the equation, not the whole part. If you can eliminate the entire planet's emissions for one to two percent of GDP, and that's what the scientists come up with the same number, you know, is that really a hard thing for us collectively to choose to do? I think not. I would do anything for my kids, and most people say the same thing, but we're not willing to divert one to two percent of GDP to solve the problem. So continuous lobbying of representatives to demand this is an emergency and put it on top of the list for the sake of our kids and their kids that to me combined with your own emissions is, is critical you know my message is there are solutions we can fix this problem but we have to make choices i've really enjoyed this discussion and i'm also very thankful for the work that that you do and and one thing i think that's been very clear even though we're remote and we can't see each other I can feel the mission-driven aspects of of your work and what drives you just kind of oozing out of you. So, you know, I know you're coming from the right place and I, I really wish you best of luck with everything that you're doing. And I'm proud to be a small part of it as well. Great. Well, listen, thank you for your interest. People like yourself getting more and more interested in climate change, asking the tough questions, doing the research is invaluable. So thank you for your work and we'll keep doing what we're doing here at Carbon Engineering. Okay, Steve, thanks again for coming on the show. Best of luck to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs 22 where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.